Hello, Merry Christmas, and welcome to the Zonal Marking podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell. This is our fifth Zonal Marking podcast, and this one has a slightly different setup. Please do check out our four other episodes and discover other athletic podcasts on The Athletic website. For now, I'll allow Michael Cox to explain the who, what, why, and how of today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Zonal Marking Podcast. My name is Michael Cox. At The Athletic, we're very lucky to have Rafael Benitez as one of our columnists this season. And recently he was conducting one of his Q&A sessions, which you can read on the app if you're a subscriber. And he was asked about his major coaching influences. Rafa gave two names, Arrigo Sacchi and Francesco Maturana. You probably know about Saki, Milan, 4-4-2, zonal defending, but you might not know so much about Maturana, who was Colombia manager on four occasions. So I thought, why not make a podcast about him? We're going to hear from Rafa himself later on, but first I'm joined by Carl Wurzwick. Carl is a British-born, Bogota-based football journalist. He's World Soccer Magazine's Columbia correspondent, has written for The Guardian, and has interviewed Maturana for The Blizzard, so is perfectly placed to explain his importance in Colombia and across the footballing world. Carl, thanks for joining me today. First, very open-ended question, how big a figure is Maturana in Colombia? Probably the biggest. In terms of managers, he... I mean, Colombians talk of Maturana's before Maturana and after Maturana. He was that big. If anything about Colombian football, we think back to that golden era and mm-hmm. Valderrama's hair and Asprilla's time in, in England. But uh, yeah, Maturana is probably the biggest. I mean, in recent years, because of Peckham's success in getting Colombia to the quarterfinals, his legacy has perhaps been overshadowed slightly. But um, yeah, I, I, when I, I went to interview him there was um, a lot of research done into that and a lot of people told me that there are there are two books in every single house in Colombia one of them's the bible and one of them's uh, <laughs> Maturana's autobiography which was the first book in Spanish I read so okay nice um, so you mentioned how revolutionary he is Colombia is a footballing nation it's quite a populous nation before the late 1980s and his impact there, there isn't really much success to speak of. There's been one World Cup qualification. They haven't won the Copa America. What is holding Colombian football back? Well, I think you've got to go back to the start of professional football, which was in 1948. And before that, um, nearly all of the South American nations had a, a national league. And Colombia were really quite late in getting that together. One of the reasons is that in Colombia, um, you've got the Andes. Um, mountains and they split in three so it's always been quite a region a country where the regions are separated and it was hard for the federation to gather all those regions together into one single entity and there were a lot of the regions fighting for um, to, to retain control but then there was a in 1948 there was a presidential candidate slightly left of center who was destined to win the, the elections and he was shot dead on his way to meet a, a young Cuban lawyer called Fidel Castro. And that really did um, spark into life um, what was called La Violencia, the violence. Mm-hmm. And as a response, the government wanted to give people to do at a weekend instead to, to prevent them from killing each other. And yeah, it was no coincidence that three months later, the Colombian League was cobbled together. And then there was another interesting development because at that time there was a player strike in Argentina and one visionary um, businessman had the idea of sending someone to 
um, Argentina with a briefcase with $5,000 to pick up the best player there. And they came back and that started the era that's called El Dorado. Not many people know a lot about it, but it was arguably the best league in the world back then. And they were going on raiding missions across the entire world, bringing in players from Hungary, from England, a few players, Charlie Mitten, who uh, was at Manchester United at the time, came over to play. But it was short-lived, mainly, and they relied so heavily on foreigners to give them that star show, um, and they were kicked out of FIFA. And when it all settled down and all the players returned home, the league just disappeared back into the shadows. And that was really the case for right up until the, the 70s, when another coach um, from Argentina, Zueldia, who was the coach of Estudiantes de la Plata, who uh, caused a lot of trouble for Manchester United in the mm-hmm. uh, Intercontinental, a filthy team. <laughs> and um, he really got ostracised from Argentina and ended up in Colombia. And he's, he was the first, let's say, um, influence in Maturana's uh, life. Now, Maturana is um, is from the poorest region, he's a, he's a black coach, and he was at Atletico Nacional, who these days is the biggest football team in, in Colombia, but back then they hadn't really won anything. And I suppose you could say he was a bit like Wenger in that he came in and he professionalised the game and just simple things that were having double training sessions because previously players would train in the morning and then go down the boozer in the afternoon and so those kind of things and he made Maturana his captain and I think because Maturana was a bit of a thinker and his nickname to this day in Colombia is the philosopher of football <laughs> he was a good player but he never was good enough to play outside the country and he finished his career at Tolima but he knew that was the time to to hang up his boots even though he wasn't that old and then comes the second influence in Maturana's career as a, as a manager, and that was uh, from Uruguay. As always, Uruguay is probably the most progressive, um, open to ideas, and they were soaking up ideas from Europe. And it was a couple of uh, Uruguayan coaches, one in particular called Ricardo de Leon, who um, knew Michels from, from Ajax and Holland, but also argues that he got a lot of his ideas from basketball, watching a lot of basketball, he was a big basketball fan, and watching that development of how um, of pressing, of zonal pressing. Um, but from, the, the, I guess, the departure from the Holland system was that it was a predominantly very defensive, which fit the Uruguayan mould. And, yeah, he won the league with Defensive Sporting, which is a, t- a tiny team in in Uruguay um, in the mid-70s and ended up in Colombia afterwards. And one of his players at Defence Sporting also ended up in Colombia and the paths coincided and Maturana came into contact with them. But Maturana, throughout his playing career, he was a dentist. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, want, he, wanted, he never wanted to, to give up on that. He was constantly wanting to study and better himself. on, And he, he sees football as... Uh, accumulation of influences from all around society from and he thinks his experience of being a dentist has helped him in deal with people and solve problems so yeah it was really until the mid 1980s he was being a de- he was just a dentist until one of those players who played under de leon luis coia came and knocked on his door and gave him the job as nacional's under 16 manager and it was really from there that he then went on to transform Colombian football. And he, he progresses quite quickly to both the full job at Atletico Nacional and the Colombia job. One of the interesting things, I mean, looking at Colombia's football, uh, footballing history, is 
there aren't many Colombian managers in terms of the national team. Um, there's Peruvians, there's Venezuelans, Argentines, even Austrians, Serbians. I mean, one, why is that? And two, does that contribute to a lack of a kind of classic Colombian footballing identity because they're always bringing in other people's footballing cultures rather than developing their own. Absolutely. And I think that the legacy that came fr from El Dorado where Colombians felt they were second-class citizens and a lot of them wouldn't be playing because... And th there was one story I heard from back then where a Brazilian... Somebody had heard that a Brazilian was in town and he, he, he went to a, one of the big football teams and won a trial. And he wasn't even a footballer, he was a priest, and yet he was in the starting lineup that, that, that week ahead of the Colombian. And so Colombians that never really had any confidence in themselves, they never had the chance to forge an identity because right from the very beginning, it was a predominantly Argentinian identity because all the stars of the day were Argentinian. Di Stefano famously played for the, t the big team back then, which was Millonarios. And there was just no money afterwards and the government stopped throwing money, money at the league. It struggled for so many years. And they always thought, and still to this day, I think, they always think a foreign coach knows more than us. So I think Maturana was the first person to gather all those things together. And Colombia is, is, a, is a huge country. And there are different parts of the country that have... Um, well, I, I guess if you've got a, a, a great striker from the coast, then from then on, uh, strikers are generally going to come from the coast and, mm -hmm. and the technical ability comes from the centre of the country. And uh, so that, that, that's what Maturana did. He, and I think very similar to what Ajax and Holland were doing, he, he started his, his managerial career at a small team but that didn't have um, a lot of resources and he had to use local players. And then within a year, he got the Nacional job, so his first big job. Um, where Zuel Dia, his former coach, had coached. And um, he decided that what he wanted to do was use um, players from that region. Um, and that region is... Uh, um, people from that region are known for being very hard-working, uh, nobody helps me but myself, disciplined, and that's what he wanted in building this structure of uh, zonal on um, defensive marking, as you said, um, like Saki was doing. Mm -hmm. He did quite well for them and Nassina was suitably impressed and he had the links because he was former captain there, so they gave him a job. But um, yeah, he was, he was one of the first black coaches to be given such a huge job. And really, it, it went so so quickly within another year, he was Colombian manager. And at the time, it was a, a very controversial policy. And he continued to be national manager and Columbia manager. He says quite openly that I was the only national team manager that was training with the players every single day <laughs> because he was using as the base of his team, like Ajax and Holland, national. And um, that was quite controversial because he was picking national players in all the key positions and other parts of the country were complaining that their players were being ignored. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned a couple of times the um, the Dutch school. Obviously, Saki was hugely inspired by Ajax. Saki was kind of railing against the traditional Italian defensiveness and negativity, playing for results, which I think is actually quite different to Rinus McElz, who speaks about football in a more kind of functional way. He almost thought total football was the best way to get results. It wasn't necessarily about putting on a show. Maturana seems more similar to Saki in terms of he wants to put on a show. And, I mean, is it unfair to, or is it simplistic to say that he wants a more Colombian style of football in terms of Colombia as a country from the outside we associate with dance, with 
high spirits with happiness. He seems to want Colombia to play in a more kind of typically Colombian way. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I've I've seen that a lot of people have equated um, the Colombian style as the the national music salsa, and that's like. Um, watching them da- dance their way to success. And, that, and certainly that game against Germany in the 1990 World Cup, where for 90 minutes, at the first World Cup for 28 years, they play Germany off the park, but without really doing any damage. And you just get the feeling that if they were to just shift this up a gear, they could re- cause a real upset here. He certainly taps into that regional identity and tries to pull it all together. So he, he would always pick the same central midfielders who were known for the discipline. Um, from that region of Antioquia where he was from um, and then from the coast but um, he would have um, more technically um, gifted players he was very conscious of the fact that Colombia hadn't got an identity and he wanted to forge that for the first time but also I think he was so open to outside influences that um, it wasn't so rigid um, that he, he would just no, if we're going to do it the Colombian way, he, he would be open to other ideas too. I guess one of the key years here is 1989, um, which is an interesting year because it's a fairly dark year for the country overall, but there's two major successes. One is the qualification for the World Cup, um, and we'll speak about that World Cup a little bit more in, in detail in a second. But first, Atletico Nacional, who of course Maturana is still in charge of at this time, they win the uh, Copa Libertadores. That's the first ever Colombian success in that competition. How big a deal is that to Colombian football as a whole? Oh, absolutely massive. It's the first time ever Colombia had really achieved anything. Um, and I think one of the things that Maturana did was to to sort out the defence because as soon as Colombia went 1-0 down, their heads would drop and they would have no confidence in themselves to... Uh, and they'd... Yeah, it, they, when they're playing against Brazil and Argentina, they'd almost lost the game before they'd even played it because they just were so in awe of these huge football neighbours. Um, so to, to win the Copa Libertadores was something special because Nacional weren't allowed to play the second leg of their final in their home stadium. They had to play it in Bogotá and there's a massive rivalry between Medellín and where Nacional are from and Bogotá um, in Millonarios' ground who were the big, big rivals and they had to win it there. Um, so I think it was just um, that was the epitome of what he'd been working on for three or four years, and, and of course he was still the 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 Colombian manager and working on very very similar um, structure. Like you said, 1989 was about as dark as it got for Colombia. The league ta- the league championship was cancelled that year after a referee was was murdered on the orders of Pablo Escobar somebody who Maturana went to school with Hmm. and knew quite well. When I've talked to him about that, he gets quite agitated. He's like many people from that, uh, who played in that era, they're not keen on talking of those dark, dark days. They feel like it's almost discrediting their work because the simplistic way of looking at it is, well, you only won it because you had money piled in and all that from Escobar and he was threatening refs. But, yeah, it's, it's also forgetting that this was a really fantastic team that a little bit later went on to play AC Milan. Mm-hmm. Um, Saki's great AC Milan a team in Tokyo 
and push them right, right to the wire. I mean, I watched this match back on uh, a very, v- a very grainy VHS tape that's been uploaded to YouTube recently, and it's a fantastic game. And beforehand, there's this great, slightly bizarre pitch side interview with the managers where Matarana is speaking about Saki and saying anyone who loves football should pay homage to him. And Saki is asked about Matarana and he says he's created Colombian football, which has never before existed in Colombian history. Um, the main thing I noticed from the game was. Uh, something that kind of feeds into Maturana's tactics was the incredible sweeping of Rene Higuita, which, uh, I mean, we know him for the uh, for the incident with Roger Miller and for the scorpion kick. But this is a guy who, you know, from reading reports at the time, is basically revolutionising uh, goalkeeping in, in South America. Yeah, I mean, Maturana says that it's, we're playing with 11 outfield players against 10. And when that happens, you've got always going to have an advantage. Not just that, but also the psychological boost it gives when Higuita's out towards the halfway line, the whole stadium erupts and they want to see him go on a dribble and the amount of fouls he, he wins. And he was a really, really good outfield player. And Sally is remembered for what happened against Cameroon. And at that point, it was in the last 16 of the 1990 World Cup and the first they'd ever got. But Colombia were losing at that point And it was Higuita who decided to make something happen. Uh, and he was 23 years old and Matarana still says watching him uh, do that I still don't feel um, yeah, any sort of regret for it uh, I think it was he was the one that saved us so many times and that it didn't come off that time but uh, it, it also helped fed into the system he was playing of being really compact and squeezing play almost I think he, his expression is like I wanted to play like an accordion how you would squeeze play really close and then be really expansive in stretching player and catching people out of, of position and Higita doing that would 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 help he was really like a sweeper in trying to intercept passes between the strikers and it's this is going back in 1989 it's so different um, and you don't really see that very much these days um, though because I, I guess goalkeepers have to be good with their feet but still in Colombia that legacy exists because you have so many goalkeepers who take free kicks and who do like to come out of their area and I don't think there are many countries where that still happens You're listening to the Zonal Marking Podcast. Now, at The Athletic, we are very lucky to work closely with Rafa Benitez. And hopefully by now, if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, you have already consumed plenty of the excellent content provided by Rafa Benitez in the last few months. But Benitez has always cited Francisco Maturana as an inspiration on him, a huge influence on his career. So we spoke to Rafa Benitez. We asked him about Francisco Maturana. And first up, we asked him, where does his influence come from? Why did he inspire a young Rafa Benitez? Francisco Maturana was a coach that he came to Spain to coach Valladolid. And I was lucky enough that the technical director of Real Madrid at this time, he was the former chief executive of Valladolid. So then... Francisco Maturana was a famous coach in South America from Colombia and uh, tactically he was very good. Then Valladolid started playing uh, with a very special way. So at this time, uh, Arrigo Saki, that was my my idol in terms of um, tactical uh, analysis, AC Milan scoring uh, 
a lot of goals, but defending really well with a very, very high pressing, intensive pressing. Maturana was similar, but in a different way. So they keep the, the defensive line very high, and uh, they used to play with two holding midfielders all the time. And they have the two centre-backs, the two holding midfielders, two players up front, and two players uh, even uh, higher. And the full-backs going forward is the magic square that they call in South America. Then he was using this system with Valladolid. I went to Valladolid, it's around one hour uh, from uh, Madrid. I spent some time with him, watching him training, having lunch with him, talking about football. And after he went to Atletico Madrid as a coach, and uh, also I, I kept the, the relationship with him. He was famous because they beat Argentina 0-5 with Colombia in Buenos Aires. So he was um, an interesting uh, coach and a really nice person. And still I, I keep the contact sometimes with him. I was watching him uh, training, I was watching the games, I was analyzing the games, I was talking with him about the games. And then after, I spent 10 days uh, in Italy uh, following teams. And one of these teams was uh, AC Milan when uh, Capello was the coach. And I remember I was asking Capello, and I remember I was asking Tassotti, and I remember that I was a right fullback at this time. And later on, I was watching the national team, and I remember asking uh, Arrigo Saki about the way that Maturana was doing the, the pressing and how they do the pressing. For example, the winger and the fullback. So the fullback uh, pushing the winger, Maturana was telling the, the fullback that he has to be on the line and send the winger inside. But in, in Europe, and normally, you leave the, the winger wide, so that is less dangerous. But he has a special way because he has the two holding midfielders. So it was very interesting for someone like me that I enjoy with tactics. The main thing, he was capable to keep the line really high. And uh, when I was there, they played against a, a Colombian team, America, the Cali, and then they were, both teams, they were in 30 meters. So imagine both teams in 30 meters. They were playing and giving the ball away, regaining the ball, giving the ball away, regaining the ball. They finished nil-nil. But tactically for a coach, it was so, so good, the game, that you could analyze so many things that uh, I like it a lot. And then when I go and I talk with, especially with South American players, uh, they understand this uh, way to do things. And then I try to, to manage them and then explain to them what they want to do. But they can see that I understand at least what they, they used to do. Next we asked Rafa to discuss Maturana side-by-side side with another of his great influences, Arago Saki. Were there similarities between their footballing philosophies or were there large differences? Similar in terms of the, the high line, the defensive high line. Uh, Maturana was more about passing, more South American style, passing the ball, because uh, the two players in front of the two holding midfielders, they were playing with quality like the strikers and they have freedom in defence. And then the rest of the players, everybody has to pass the ball, has to, has to play on the floor. And uh, Saki was more uh, using uh, direct football if it's necessary, counter-attack when it was necessary, and passing the ball also, but with more pace. And Saki was more European style, and uh, Maturana was more South American style. Arrigo Saki, he changed, uh, he changed the, the way that the, the European uh, teams, they were doing pressing and, and they were playing, so it was really difficult for anyone to play against them at the time when Baresi was there or Maldini all these players uh, in South America obviously uh, Maturana also changed but the style in, in Argentina Chile uh, Peru is different to the style in Colombia or in Brazil so the Brazilians they play with the same system but uh, it's not the same approach they are not so aggressive like uh, the teams of Maturana so then has had an influence yes uh, still uh, is having an influence yeah, I think so but not in all the countries because I think Brazil or Argentina they are the main countries in, in South America in terms of uh, football 
So, Carl, the football hipsters like Rafa are aware of this uh, Atletico Nacional side, but the wider public only learn about Colombia for the first time ahead of World Cup 1990. And one of the interesting things here is that, of course, the tournament is in Italy and who is showing up at the training sessions but one, Arrigo Sacchi. And then you've got their upcoming opponents, Colombia's upcoming opponents, um, you know, Germany and Yugoslavia. Previously, maybe thinking Colombia a bit of a pushover, but suddenly the most influential coach in European football is going along to their training sessions and, and making notes. Um, and like, hang on, we've got a, a bit of a game on here. Um, as we've mentioned, it's kind of remembered for... You know, the defeat to Cameroon, Higuita getting robbed by Roger Miller. Um, to what extent is that viewed as kind of a breakthrough in, in Colombia, that tournament, just qualifying for the World Cup? Massive, because um, it had been 28 years since he'd last qualified for a, a finals. And the first time they only qualified because they won a one-off game against Peru. And then they were thrashed. I think it's 6-0 by Yugoslavia when they got to uh, the Chile World Cup. And Maturana talks about how can you imagine what it's like to go 28 years without having watched a World Cup game with your home, your own country in it and your greatest ever result being a 4-4 draw? <laughs> and that 4-4 draw is, is, um, still lives on in Colombia because it was the, f- the first and only uh, Olympic goal was scored. It was against Lev Yashin, a, a corner floats in and it's ridiculous really to see how he doesn't read it and he spills in and it goes straight through him. Maturana talks about how a couple of years before that a tour was organised as part of the Stanley Roos Cup which mm-hmm. I don't think exists anymore. No. So he was a former FIFA president I think I'm right in saying wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he was a British guy wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and as part of that um, Columbia came to play a friendly in Scotland and then they played Finland and finally the tour ended with a game at Wembley against England and Columbia didn't lose a single one of those games and this is a year after he'd taken over as Columbia manager and he says that gave us so much belief to um, go into that World Cup knowing that we could compete with the very very best because this still was um, a great England team who Colombians again looked at as being the founding fathers of the game and uh, the bastion of how the game should be played. The the confidence was there beforehand, but in they, they lost against Yugoslavia, who went on to finish in the quarters 2-1. They beat a poor UAE team in that final game against Germany. Well, they only needed a draw, and then Germany scored right at the end, and Valderrama picks up a pass and really late on. And the commentary now is... is of that game of when Freddie Ron- Rincon slide it, slides it through, is it Bodo Ilgner? Mm-hmm. Yeah, must have been, yeah, yeah. yeah through, through him is um, one of the most iconic pieces of commentary ever. The, the guy just loses it and sh- screams, I love you, Columbia, about 200 times. And, yeah, that, and they go through, and that was uh, the first first time that Columbia had really achieved anything in in international football. One of the interesting things about Maturana, I guess, makes him more mysterious to us and I guess not particularly well known to us is he never particularly succeeds in Europe. He has a couple of spells over here um, with Real Valladolid. But he goes back to Colombia with America de Cali. He wins the title and then it's back to the national team for World Cup 94 qualification. And there Colombia achieved one of the most momentous results of the last, I guess, 30 or 40 years against Argentina who at this point have won back-to-back Copa Americas. But before we talk about that 5-0, there's the first game against Argentina where they win 2-0 in Barranquilla and they do it without Tino Aspria, 
which I believe is uh, a bit controversial, his uh, omission from the side. Yeah, it started at the 1993 Copa America and Argentina beat Colombia in that tournament. And it was a really, really fiery affair. And at the end, it ended in, in fisticuffs. And, um, but Asperia turned up late to that tournament and this is 1993 he joined Palmer in 1992 and he was having a great season he really thought he was one of the best players in the world and that he could just turn up to that tournament late and so he the team were were preparing for the tournament and he was on a Caribbean island with one of his his girlfriends and he got a private jet into Ecuador where the Copa America was being played and the the rest of the players had started to feel a bit annoyed that he kept being picked and throughout the qualifiers, they were getting a little bit annoyed that he wasn't performing and he felt like he'd just sell through games based upon his previous season's uh, form. So it got to a point where he was dropped for that game and, and Colombia won 2-0, which um, ended Argentina's, I think it's 30-match unbeaten run. They hadn't mm-hmm. lost 30 matches uh, since the World Cup final yep. in 1990. So, yeah, again, this was... Um, and by that time, I mean, the 1990 team um, had been supplemented by players like Aspria to make it even better. Um, so a lot of people still think when they went to Argentina, they were expecting to get beat. They needed just a draw. But uh, maybe it isn't quite so surprising that uh, Colombia would, would go and uh, get a result there. Maybe not in the, in the manner in which they did, but um, it showed that Colombia for five years now have been consistently picking up results against some of the best teams in the world. And as Pro returns for the, the 5-0, the speed of him and Odolfo Valencia is just electric on the break, really, is, is the thing that wins the game. Um, I mean, there's so many interesting things about this game, um, not least the fact you uh, wrote in one of your Blizzard articles, it comes close to being abandoned because a plane sailed a little bit close to the stadium, which is uh, a slightly peculiar development. But in terms of the game itself, how big a deal is this for, for Colombia? I believe there's a book entirely dedicated to this game, which is uh, somewhat popular in Colombia. Yeah, El Cinco Cero. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I spoke to the author of that book before writing that article, and I said I asked him that same question, why is that 5-0 win so important? And he said, um, because it sums up all that was good about Colombian football and all what was bad, um, because clearly that result... Um, Columbia didn't know how to handle that. And as a result of uh, beating Argentina 5-0 on their own ground, they just spiralled out of control after that. And everybody, we've still got to remember that the political and social situation at that time was a complete mess, complete disaster. And it was one of the most dangerous countries in the world. Medellin was the most dangerous city in the world. And in the midst of all that, and everybody around the world knew Columbia for... Pablo Escobar and drugs and bombs and murders. Um, and in the midst of that, the only positive thing was the football team. And so to go to a Buenos Aires and won 5 0 against your historic rival, against the country that crafted your football culture, was probably the, the last thing they needed, really, because uh, it did literally send them crazy. And then, yeah, the, the plane incident, there's a photo of the plane, and it, it really is just metres away from, from crashing into the stand. And it was a pilot who who realised that Colombia were playing Argentina in the Monumental and decided to have a closer look and he announced it on the plane that, oh, look down there, you can see. <laughs> um, but almost, uh, but of course, that wasn't the 
the biggest disaster that day for Argentinian football. I think Colombians have also viewed Argentina, while massively respecting their football culture, as being unbelievably arrogant. Um, with some justification in because Colombia had done nothing against Argentina. So to slap that arrogance back in their face, and Maradona said before or beforehand, I think it was two days before the game, um, we're going to play this game like we've always played this game, with Argentina up here and Colombia down there. And so there were quite a lot of interviews like that that really added spice going into the game. And, I mean, in terms of arrogance and, and getting carried away, there's an argument that this was too big a win for Colombia, that 5-0 away in Argentina, getting a stand ovation when they leave the pitch, Pele calls them the, the favourites for the World Cup on the back of that. Does that lead to a, an arrogance and overconfidence in, in the Colombian side? Almost straight away. And I think it's after the fourth goal goes in, the assistant manager turns round to Matarana and basically says, that's it, we're fucked. And because everybody's going to demand that we win the World Cup now, the game hadn't even finished and he was aware of what that would have meant for Colombia. But it was over 100 people died in the celebrations. Almost a 1,000 were injured in celebrations. And they get back to um, Bogota. They, they're driven straight to the airport. It takes three uh, From the airport to the football ground, it takes three hours normally. I'm going to do that trip when I get back, and it's 20 minutes. <laughs> and it's, it takes three hours because there's so many people in the streets, and there's 50,000 in the stadium. And even the president gets on TV and talks about it. The team haven't even <laughs> properly arrived back in the country and you can see where it's heading. And from from then on, Maturana and, and his assistant, Bolio Gomez, don't really get a grasp of it. Because of what's going on in the country with, I mean, Escobar still on the rampage. And when he's murdered three months later, that you would think, OK, that, that's the end of that then, but no, there's, there's this explosion of, of other criminal groups who's trying to fight. They were fighting for control of his, his former empire. The country is... The politicians are, are desperately trying to grasp hold of something to, to keep the country together. It's tragic, really, to see how every single part of society is clawing at the football team and trying to use them to further their, their mission. So they're... they're the Football Federation especially just sees this with massive dollar signs in their eyes. So there's about 28 friendlies that they 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 set up between um, just before the World Cup. Valderrama's injured against Sweden, so he's not fully fit for that first day, first game. Tino is, is still at Parma, and he gets the Parma C team to come over to some small town in Colombia, and they play a friendly there. <laughs> Uh, they do a tour of the, of the Middle East. It's just, if there's a manual how not to prepare for a World Cup, <laughs> Colombia wrote it in, in those few months leading up to it. And um, in the book that you, you talk about by a Colombian journalist called Mauricio Silva, he goes and talks to a lot of the players of that time. And quite a few of them don't want to give their name. But he talked about how on one occasion the Cali cartel, which was became the biggest cartel after and drug cartel after the Pablo Escobar's um, empire crumbled, invite the Colombian national football team to a secret uh, hideout, a ranch in the middle of the country. And all the players, probably the most famous people in the country at that point, are blindfolded, they've got a hood on their heads, and they're dragged to this meeting with the big crime bosses, 
where yeah there's champagne and there's dancing ladies and there's there's everything you can think of and and the purpose of the meeting is to talk about the bonuses the cartel are going to give um for reaching certain stages of the so there's the pressure too and for these players who the majority of them are still playing in the Colombian league they don't really know what what's going on they're just swept away by it and so yeah june comes and it's an absolute disaster in every possible way Matarana also says that if if the World Cup had have come two months after um, that 5-0 win, they would have won it. But so many things happened in that nine months period in between that they just, yeah, can't, can't uh, come to terms with it at all. And I guess a lot of people know the story of uh, Colombia's experience at World Cup 1994. Obviously, Andres Escobar scores an own goal and, and comes back and, and is murdered. And there's obviously a very famous documentary, ESPN documentary called The Two Escobars. They kind of link what's happening in, in Colombia politically and socially to the football team. From your perspective, someone who's done a lot of research and interviewed a lot of people around this kind of story, is there poetic license used in that documentary or was was were these two areas just inextricably linked? I think so slightly because, I mean, it is an absolutely brilliant documentary and it's kind of made my life an absolute hell in Colombia because every single time I say I want to make some sort of documentary or I'm helping someone to make a documentary, the all the Federation just sees up because they, they feed a repeat of <laughs> of what that documentary did but and it makes brilliant tv but i think that there are so many factors that derail that that team not to say you can't ignore the threats made if we start off with that tournament columbia go into it uh, against the first game is against romania and maturana bonsal he went to see two friendlies of uh, romanians and he'd done his own work okay. um, <laughs> and he was very confident that they would do they were going to beat them. And if you watch the game, Colombia absolutely destroyed them. And they're very, very unlucky. And you mentioned before Saki. Um, well, Maturana and Saki became really good friends during this period. They'd been friends for quite a while since the Intercontinental final. And they sort of bounced off each other and they would always ring each other up and ask for advice. And um, the first person he rang was Saki and said, so what do I do now? And Saki just said, calm down. You... I watched that game, you were fine. You were just unlucky. you just got to keep yourself together. But because of what was going on, I think this is more important than the the threats that um, arrived on the eve of their second game against the United States. But what because of what was going on, the Colombian Football Federation had put the Colombian national team in a hotel with fans who were one competition and you can f- and the competition was oh you can fly over to the United States and stay in their hotel and well you can imagine what Tino Espria was doing there was parties every single night yeah. there was n- zero discipline the families were stopping in the same hotel there were prostitutes there were yeah what happens the eve of the game Maturana gets a, a phone call saying if you pick this player then I'm going to have um, he murdered and his family murdered and you murdered and he calls a meeting with his assistant who is Bolio Gomez and the player was his brother and he that was seen as a bit of bit uncomfortable and they decided to pull him so they thought um, I guess they had legitimate reason to think that the, the threat was real though Maturana says to this day that was never investigated nothing was ever done about that and Columbia go out there and this 
hypnotic style vanishes. Yeah, he, he he mentions how I didn't do I didn't need to do any homework on the United States because we played every single time we played them we'd we'd slaughter them. If we played them ten times, we beat them nine times, and they lose two one. And it's just so unfortunate that Andres Escobar, who was a one of the greatest Colombian defenders of all time, was to score that goal. And then a few weeks later, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And yeah, he's uh, and there's a story on the way back where. They're almost smuggled into the country. Antino Aspria, who's seen as the, the big party animal and the real infectious character in the in the changing room, sits next to Andres Escobar, who was quite a shy guy, who was known as the, the gentleman of Colombian football. That was his nickname, from quite a, a well-to-do family. And he set, tells Tino, look, I know you like to go out, but keep your head down for the next few weeks. And... Um, Andres Escobar had written this piece in the main newspaper saying, yes, we're all disappointed, but football must go on, life goes on. And it's actually him who goes out, not Tino. One of the most tragic um, episodes in football history, really. From here, I mean, Maturana moves on. He leaves the Colombia job. Um, there's a spell at Atletico Madrid that doesn't last long. Stints in charge of Ecuador, Peru, Costa Rica. Then we can pick up the story when he returns as Colombia manager in 2001 for Copa America on home soil. And again, the state of the country means this tournament is slightly overshadowed. Argentina withdraw because of some safety concerns. Brazil sent, I think, a, a third string 11 in the end because uh, they're competing in the Confederations Cup. Ends with Ivan Cordoba heading in the winner against Mexico. Uh, this is Colombia's first ever international success. It completes an incredible double for, for Maturana. Won the Copa Libertadores in 1989. Now he's won the Copa America in 2001. Both of them the first Colombian success in those competitions. Um, that really seals his place in history, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. Although there's always been that ever that flicker of doubt that because that tournament was quite weak, I mean, I think Honduras gets to the semi-finals, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, he hasn't really gained the recognition as he perhaps should have done. But I mean, Colombia won every single game. They didn't even concede a goal in that tournament, um, and the whole country got behind it because, yet again, this was their moment to say, "Well, we're more than what you read about in the in the international media," and and so they really go to town on this tournament to make it um, a success because, I mean, Argentina pulled out because um, the FARC, who are one of the, the guerrilla groups have been fighting the Colombian state for since 1964, that was almost the height of their power and they controlled huge parts of the country and they kidnapped someone and Argentina said, no, nah, we're not, we're not going to bother going there, it's too dangerous. Um, and again, that sort of irks a lot of Colombians because it removes that legitimate claim to an international trophy. And you'll hear Argentinian journalists saying, well, that, 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 that tournament doesn't really count. We don't really class that as a, a, an honour, given that it was stained by all the external factors going on. And we weren't there. If we were there, we'd have, we would have won it. But I think for, for Maturana, it was his final sort of moment in the sun, really, because ever since then, he has struggled to to maintain his relevance in Colombian football and his last job in Colombia he, he did full circle his first job was at a team um, who are now called Onsicals he came back 
two or three years ago, and he was an absolute disaster. I don't. He didn't even really have a style by then. He was fighting all the time with his players, and he just looked quite aloof, really, in dealing with the press. He he just didn't have the same infectious uh, charisma as, as he once did. And, and he's been spending quite a lot of time in public health, um, working uh, on personal projects. He was a member of the FIFA committee and that gives him chance to keep in touch with quite a lot of trends in Europe. And uh, the knowledge is still there, but um, I guess he's, he's not um, the same figure in the changing rooms as, as he once was. And now he's in Bolivia at a mid-table Bolivian team at age 70. Yeah, so. I'm impressed he's still coaching at the age of 70, to mm. be fair. And just finally, Carl, in terms of your personal experience of him, we've heard about his rise, about his tactical style. How is he in person? What kind of figure is he in, in Colombia? Is he a warm, kind of well-like figure to this day? He was a hero at Once Caldas. That's where he started. And because of the latest episode, he where he was a, a real disaster and he was kicked out the door and told never to come back. Um, he says that he was promised some star signings, Hugo Rodriguez, Jackson Martinez, who were playing at really good levels at that point, and they never materialised. I, I guess that sort of damaged his reputation a bit, but that's, that's, that's really unfair. I think he's still uh, such a massive figure in Colombian. He did change Colombian fo football history in a, such a turbulent time, such a horrible period. And so I think most people recognise him as being very respected. When I went to meet him, he, yeah, a complete gentleman, very, very gentle in the way he speaks, carefully considers almost every word. He likes to pepper his answers with um, flowery responses, drops poetry in there. I think sometimes he's, he's sort of trying a bit too hard to uh, show that all is... It's not just about football, he... There's, a, there's one story from the, the late 80s um, where he used to hand out books of poetry to the players um, to try and form this idea that if you act like a person who's knowledgeable and if you put on a nice suit, then you're going to feel proud of representing your country. And um, that really wasn't a thing of the time. And some, some players started reading the poetry and I'm not sure how <laughs> how that inspired uh, the 5-0 win against Argentina. But uh, <laughs> he he likes to gather influences from all over the place. And that was he gave me lots of time. I came back the next day and did another two hours with him. And uh, yeah, it was a really nice chat with him. Pleased to hear it. Well, that is the life and times of uh, Francisco Maturana, one of Rafael Benitez's heroes, as he's mentioned earlier. One of the most influential coaches in South America, maybe one of the most underappreciated in terms of world football over the last 30 years or so. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. From all of us here at the Zonal Marking Podcast, Feliz Navidad, and that's it for us for the rest of this year. But we will be back with a bang in the new year. No such break for many of the Athletic's fantastic football writers. And if you have not signed up to The Athletic, if you would like to give it a go today or gift it to someone for Christmas, you can get 40% off by using the URL theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking. That's theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking for a 40% off discount for the athletic website and app. Thank you for listening and we look forward to bringing you new episodes in the new year. <laughs>